And uh, yeah, I am so thankful, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you for wherever he went. Um, thank you. Oh, right there. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you for praying for me. And, uh, you know, it was just so fun this morning to go sit in our prayer group. There's a group of people that, that pray before church every week. And, it was, and I was in the room, and I'm sitting with a few people, and all of a sudden I hear this booming voice. And I'm thinking, where is that? Where is that coming from? And they had a few people on Zoom coming through a speaker, and I was like, wow, what is that? But it was just so amazing and, and such an encouraging thing to sit with people that just pray, that honor the Lord, that ask for his blessing, and to hear uh, them praying for me and praying for all of you and our church family was just so wonderful. And I'm so thankful to be together. I think about our kids that uh, are in Sunday school, and people are loving them, praying for them, and laying a spiritual foundation that leads to eternal life. And I'm just so thankful for just the fact that we're all together. Now, in this series, it's, uh, our series is This is Jesus. And our goal is to just study the book of Matthew and, and look at how Matthew, how the Bible presents Jesus. Um, the things that Jesus teaches and the way that he lives to find the real Jesus, not just something we're making up, but the real Jesus, the Jesus presented in Scripture. And that is so important. This morning, our title is Know the Real Jesus. That is the most significant thing in life, is that we know the real Jesus in a personal way. You know, Jesus says in John 14, 6, Jesus is talking to one of his disciples, Thomas, and this is what he says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Eternity is in the balance of how we see Jesus, what we understand about him, and our relationship to him. So there was this, this uh, survey that came out. I love surveys. But there was this theological survey on the theology of the church. And they do this every two years. I'll, I'll read a little thing. It's called the State of Theology. And it, it just says, the State of Theology survey has been conducted every two years since our first survey in 2014. Over the past six years, a number of noteworthy trends have emerged in our findings, revealing a profound unfamiliarity with the core teachings of Christian orthodoxy. That's, that's the standard things that we believe. And, the, and confusion about the objective nature of truth. And so they just did this survey amongst everybody who calls themselves Christians and just asked them some basic theological questions. And it was actually kind of fun. I read through it. I was surprised by some of the findings. I'll share just a couple of them with you. But one of the things I did is, is you can actually send this survey to people. I actually, I want to do it to the, I want to send this survey to our church. But um, I sent it to my family. And so you can send this survey. And the thing is, it's anonymous. So I have no idea which of my kids answered which way. But it was kind of fun. I sent the survey out to them. And then they answered all the questions. And then I could cl click. And it shows this green mark where I was and then this other mark where everyone else is. I think that would be so fun to do with our church. And one of the things that they did is they broke people into categories. And so there's age categories. Um, there's um, if you say that you're evangelical, if you go to church once a week, multiple times a week, rarely, only at Easter and Christmas. And so there's all these different categories. And you can click on those things and then and you can look at the survey as a whole or see how individually people responded. So I want to share something with you. One of the things that you notice is that 
the, the results for just Christianity as a whole, like everybody who says they're a Christian, if, if you compare that, the results as a whole, with people who go to church multiple times a week. So you go on Sunday and you go to Bible studies and, and like just more than once a week. And if you also compare that with people who define themselves as evangelical, it is amazing how different the results are. Those who say they're Christians and those who call themselves evangelical, let me, let me just define that. We are evangelical free. So that term is actually in the name of our church. So you should know what it means. If you don't, it's okay, but I just want you to know this. So evangelical means that this is a group of people that are committed to the gospel. They see sharing the gospel, knowing the good news about Jesus as a priority, and also that God's word is inspired, that it is inerrant, and that it's authoritative. So it's those two things. We believe in the gospel, salvation's important, and the Bible is true. And so if, you, if people identify as evangelical and they go to church multiple times a week, it is amazing how different the results are. And I, I often wonder, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do, do people who are spiritually faithful go to church multiple times a week? Like, is that actually a mark that if you're genuinely a believer, you're going to say that, that the gospel is important, you're going to say the Bible's authoritative, and you're going to go to church? It's something that's going to be a priority in your life. Or does going to church produce those things? And it's probably both. But let me just share with you some things about God. Okay, so this is interesting. So here's the first question is, do you believe in one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So do you believe in the Trinity? And they just ask Christians this. Christians. And 82% said yes. 82% of Christians say they believe in the Trinity. Well, that means that 18% of Christians don't believe in the Trinity. Do you know what that means? At least 18% of the people taking this survey who say they're Christians are not Christians. Uh, if, you, if you say evangelicals who attend church multiple times a week... It is 96%. That's a huge difference. Okay, how about this? Um, another question is, is God perfect and he can't make a mistake? Is God perfect and he can't make a mistake? How do you think people answered that? So this is people who say they're Christians, mind you. 65% um, of people say God can't make a mistake. So even people who believe in the Trinity believe God is fallible. So they don't actually even understand what the Bible says about Jesus. That's 65%. Now, if you do evangelicals who attend church multiple times a week, what do you think the percentage is? 97%. 97%. So I, I just have a question. How do you know... If you are following a false Christ. Like think about that. If, if people who identify themselves as Christians believe things that actually make it impossible for them to be a Christian. If that's true, how do you know that that's not you? How do you know, like when you're trying to shepherd and care for your kids, 
And, and that's our goal. Like, as, as a parent, the, the most significant thing I want, and by the way, I realize I'm not in control of my kid's spiritual destiny. I can't make them be saved or not be saved. That's something that God is going to do in their heart. We'll talk about that this week. But that's actually my greatest concern. More than whether or not my kids have a job, more than whether or not they're healthy, more than anything else, I care about their spiritual condition, their eternal destiny. And so I want to be able to think about, based on what I see in their life, based on the things that they say, do they really know Jesus? When, when you think about how important this is for our church ministry, if we're discipling people, if we're welcoming people, if we're training people, if we're picking a person and say, you, teach this class, lead this prayer group, um, oversee other people spiritually, or if we're just trying to even figure out people who walk through our door, how do we know if they actually know Jesus or if they're just like many of the people in this survey who would check a box and say, I'm a Christian, but they actually have no idea who Jesus is. They are not spiritually regenerated. When they die, they are not going to heaven. You know, it's very significant that we know the real Jesus. One of the things that we've been learning in this whole series is that religion is one of Satan's greatest tools. You know, Matthew 24, a little later on, we'll get there, but Jesus is going to tell us that false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform many signs so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And Jesus is talking about the end times, that there's going to be these people trying to mislead people, claiming to be Christ, who are not. 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking to the church in uh, chapter 11, verse 13, and he's talking about these people sent out by Satan, and he says, such men are false, dis false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as, a pro as, a, as an angel of light. So that's a question. How do we know? And how can we make sure that we are following Jesus? Well, I'm going to ask you three questions, and the answer to this should be yes. All three of these questions. I don't want you to take a survey. I'm just going to tell you the answer to these three questions is yes. Um, but what we need to do, though, is we all would want to answer these questions yes. But we actually need to look at this passage. We need to look at what Jesus says and make a decision about not just would we say yes, but is the answer really yes? So here's our three questions. Are you spiritually perceptive? We'll see that in verse 1 through 4. In other words, do you have any idea of how to even go about answering the questions about spiritual things? And I would just say most importantly in your own life. More important than you being able to evaluate the spiritual regeneration of another person is can you evaluate your own spiritual condition? Are you spiritually perceptive? Secondly, do you consciously and diligently avoid false teaching? Are you the kind of person that when you hear people proclaiming religious ideas that you kind of pick and choose? Uh, you just kind of sit back and go, hmm, 
which of these do I like best? I'll pick that one. Or are you diligent in every element of Christian belief to say, does the Bible actually say that? And, and if you run across something that the Bible actually says that you don't like, do you decide I'm going to ignore that part? I'm going to reinterpret that part because it just doesn't sit well with me. Or are you a person who says, God is in charge. He's in charge of my life. He communicates truth. And if I read something in the Bible that, don't, that I don't like, I'm the one that's going to change. So do you consciously avoid false teaching? And then here's the third question and actually the most important one. Is do you confess Christ? Do you confess Christ? And what's obvious from this survey is there is a difference between confessing Christ in a way that produces salvation, in a way that affects the way a person lives their life. There is a difference between that and confessing Christ in the sense that you would check on a form, yes, I'm a Christian. When you prayed to receive Christ, was that an expression of something that God did in your heart? Or when you confess Christ and when you prayed a prayer, were they just empty words? Because when Jesus in Matthew 7 talks about people who um, say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name and do miracles? And Jesus looks at them and says, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the category of people who when somebody gave an altar call, they went forward, they prayed a prayer. And not all of those people know the Lord. So, do you? Do you genuinely confess Christ? All right, so I've talked enough. Shall we actually read the passage and kind of see what we can learn from here? Okay, so are you spiritually perceptive? Let's look at verse 1 through 4 of Matthew 16. By the way, this is such a fun passage. It's a key passage where Jesus is going to talk about the church. That's next week. But it's based on what happens here. So um, it starts, um, this passage, in, in Matthew 15, 39. We started by um, just uh, ending that passage where it said, And after sending the crowds away, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan. And if you look at the slide, you'll notice that Jesus has gone down. He's just gone to this Gentile area where he's fed 4,000 people. And now he's going to leave that area and he's going to go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which this is very close to where he fed the 5,000, now where he ends up. And that's where this takes place. So he's now back in a Jewish area. And it says this in Matthew 16, 1. It says... And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, and he said, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. 
So when you look at this and we just consider the Pharisees, the Pharisees are religious leaders. Religion is Satan's favorite tool. And so the Pharisees are religious leaders. Now here's the interesting thing about the Pharisees is that the Pharisees are people who actually hate Jesus. Uh, the Sadducees hate Jesus. And also the Pharisees and Sadducees hate each other. They are on opposite sides of the religious spectrum. When you think about Pharisees, they were really strict. They were religious. They focused on their behavior, on obeying everything in the Bible, knowing everything that the Bible said. That was the Pharisees. They were this strict religious group. The Sadducees were the liberals. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They, they didn't believe the miracles of the Bible. In fact, they said they believed the Bible, but then when you look at the way they interpreted it, they made it, they spiritualized everything so that it wasn't actually true, it wasn't real. Uh, the Bible was just this book that was not necessarily historically accurate. The miracles recorded didn't really happen. They were just lessons to teach spiritual things, and they would just kind of, they had their own truth. You know, it's kind of amazing there are really strict religious people in our culture, and there are liberal people who just spiritualize everything. The same groups that were walking around in Jesus' day are walking around in our day. And the only thing that the Pharisees and Sadducees could get together on was their hatred of Jesus. Uh, that, that inspired them to get together. I just think about our political spectrum. How much would you have to hate somebody for the people we have on opposite ends to join forces? Man, we can't join forces over the coronavirus. We can't join forces over, over racism. Like, we can't join forces over anything. And that is how intensely these religious leaders actually hated Jesus. Now, here's something that we need to remember. Every single person has been given spiritual capacity. And I think what happens sometimes is we confuse spiritual capacity with salvation. Spiritual capacity is what drives people to religion. You know, Romans 1 says that God communicates his eternal attributes, his personal attributes through creation. And that God has put a knowledge of himself in every person. That is every person. But just because you have this sense that God is true and real does not make you a Christian because Romans 1 goes on and talks about how the people with this knowledge suppress it and deny Jesus. And then it goes on, and at the end of Romans chapter 1, it says these people with spiritual capacity worship and serve the creation instead of the creator. They make up their own Jesus. Uh, Romans chapter 2 goes on, and it says that when people who don't know God instinctively do the things of the law, they show that God has written his law on their hearts. That's spiritual capacity. John chapter 16 says that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world, and this is something the Holy Spirit does for every single person, not just Christians, everybody. John chapter 16 says that the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, so people know they're sinners. They can pick the, it convicts people of righteousness. They know Jesus is righteous. 
and it convicts them of judgment that they know that one day there will be an accounting. That is something that God puts in every single human's life. And sometimes what happens is we gather up people who have different responses to this religious capacity that God has given them. And we wrongly define those people as Christians even though they don't rightly stand before God. And like I said, we need to be able to think about life in these terms so that we know how to pray for people, so that we know how to minister to people, but most importantly, so we can think about our own standing before God. So these, these Pharisees, they were religious, the Sadducees were liberal, and they hated Jesus. And uh, religion can make us think that we actually have a relationship with Christ when in reality we're separated from him. Now this goes on, and it just says in this passage, do you have spiritual perception? These people are testing Jesus. And it's, it's testing with a desire to see him fail. Have you ever talked to people who, who question Jesus? How could God do this? And if, this, if Jesus was true, why would this happen? And they criticize God, and they basically look at life. They look at the world. They look at things in Scripture, and they say, that's not fair. That's not right. And these people are showing up to test Jesus. They're not bowing down and worshiping him. They are testing him. And, uh, you know, what's amazing in Christianity is we have all kinds of people who don't fall on their face and worship God. Our culture can say, oh, I like religion and I like Jesus, but you better define him my way. And what's so sad is that so many people in the church say, oh, okay, what do I have to change so Jesus will be acceptable to you? That's not how we approach life. That's not how we approach ministry. We've all met people like that. We've all seen people who minister in that way. But I guess a big question is, are you like the Pharisees and Sadducees? Do you have your standard that you say, God, you will fit into my pattern of you? Now, here's a crazy thing. They're demanding signs. Well, okay, this is weird because they have had so many undeniable signs. How about this? Remember at Jesus' baptism, they want a sign from heaven. The Pharisees are there. John the Baptist is having conversations with them. And what happens? Jesus is getting baptized, the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove, and a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Okay, you want a sign from heaven, you'd think that was it. Um, when, they're, when, they're, when Jesus casts out a demon, they can't deny it, and they say he does it by Satan's power. Uh, Jesus has been preaching, he's been healing every disease, every affliction, he's casting out demons, he heals a leper who actually had to go to the temple and be inspected. Like he had leprosy and somebody had to look at him. Like these religious leaders had to look at him and say, oh, yeah, I guess you don't have leprosy. You know, I mean, like Jesus is doing all these miracles right in front of them. You got blind people healed running around making Jesus known. In chapter 10 of Matthew, Jesus gets his disciples together and sends them out, and they're all healing people and doing miracles. And, and you just look at the Jesus' disciples, it's like, man, you got Matthew, a tax collector. Nobody would want him. You got Simon the Zealot. Like, these were a bunch of, like, crazy fishermen. And, and it was just like this group of people. So it's not just what did Jesus do, but what did his followers do? And then he's healing on the Sabbath. That got their attention. You can't heal on the Sabbath. They didn't miss that. And they wanted to kill him because of that. He's feeding 5,000 people with, like, 
like nothing. It's, it's incredible the miracles they've seen, and yet they say, show me a miracle. Remember Luke chapter 16? Uh, the, guy, the guy's in hell. Jesus tells a story, and he says, somebody needs to go back and warn my family so they won't come here. Send somebody back from the dead to, to talk to them. And what is said to that man, they have Moses, they have the prophets. It says they have the Bible. And if they won't listen to that, they wouldn't listen to somebody who came back from the dead. So did the Pharisees need another sign? You know, Jesus is just looking at them and he's saying, you can tell the weather, but you can't look at all these things and understand that your response to me is going to affect your eternal destiny. They missed what mattered because they were earthly-minded. You know, that's one of the things we could just ask ourselves. Are we so earthly-minded that we're spiritually imperceptive? We're distracted by whether or not we have a job. We're distracted by whether or not our kids are getting A's or if they're performing well in, school, in their sports teams. And we're not thinking about where they stand before God. So that's something incredibly significant. So Jesus' response to them is this. Jesus just says, no signs will be given. Verse 4, an evil generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Two things about the sign of Jonah. The first one is that as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, Jesus is going to die and he's going to be in the grave for three days. The second is that Jesus points out, and the, the last time this conversation happened, was that Nineveh responded to the preaching of the word, and they didn't. You want to know what Jonah's message was to uh, Nineveh? Jonah hated Nineveh, and Jonah just, it says this in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, and going a day's journey, he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah walks into town, and he says, in 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be overthrown. That was his message, a message of judgment. He hated them. He said, you are in trouble with God. And uh, you want to know what the response was? The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. He sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock will taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out to the mighty God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Listen to this. This is the uneducated, unspiritual, wicked Ninevites. Look what they say. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This unbelieving group of people had confidence in God's love, mercy, and grace. And they said, who knows? Maybe God will forgive us. And then the next verse says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. 
And then chapter 4, verse 1, here's Jonah's response. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, was this not what I said when I was in my country? That's why I tried to run to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You know, I wonder if Jonah would have been better off if he would have walked through Nineveh and just said, hey, you guys are all good. God loves everyone. Uh, God has a, has a wonderful plan for everyone's life. I wonder if that would have got anybody's attention. But they repented and God responded. So when you think about that, there are many people who as they present the gospel, they pull out part of what makes it so significant. And I wonder the damaging effect of that. Our second point is going to come from the next few verses. This is what it says. Do you avoid false teaching? Look at Matthew chapter 6, 16 verse 4. So then he left them and he departed. And when the disciples reached the other side, so Jesus gets back on a boat, he's now going to leave. And he wants to have a conversation with his disciples. So he now leaves this Jewish area. He's going to be heading up to another location we'll see in a moment. But he crosses the river to get away from the Jewish crowds. He wants to have a personal conversation with his disciples. And, and listen to this. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Okay, so... Have you ever messed up on your logistics? You were going somewhere and you forgot something. The other day I was going to the park, you know, that we all hang out. And I realized I didn't bring a chair. I'm thinking, oh, man, I didn't bring the chair. Well, you know, it's like the disciples. They're planning. They're going across. They forget to bring food. That's kind of an important thing. And so they're heading out, and they're probably having this conversation. Oh, man, you were supposed to bring the food. Why didn't you bring it? And, and they're, they're probably feeling distress about the fact that they didn't bring the food. And they're so earthly-minded and earthly-focused that they miss what Jesus is about to do. I just want to say to you, we've screwed up, right? We all have so many times. Sometimes we focus so much on where we messed up that we miss the things that God's doing. Some of us have huge sins in our past that are this distraction. And Satan, the, the accuser, is constantly bringing them up. Even as we go through life, we mess up details and we focus too much on those things. Look what happens here. This is kind of crazy. Jesus says to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And uh, his disciples hear the word leaven, which is yeast, by the way. It's how you make bread. And they forget everything Jesus, like they miss everything else Jesus is saying. All they think about is leaven. And so it says, and they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. And they're like, oh, man, we're in trouble. Jesus mad at us for not bringing bread. I just want you to know Jesus is not mad at you for the little ways you mess up in your life. You know, focus on things that are eternally significant. And Jesus, aware of this, says, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered. Jesus is saying, man, you're worried about whether you, not, you have bread? Don't you realize I can make food? Like it's not a big deal. You are with me. This is not a logistical problem for us. 
You know, how often do we go through life and we think that the details in our life, the most significant thing is how well we function and how many details we remember. And if we do this thing or we do that thing, instead of realizing God holds life in his hands, let's think about the things that are spiritually significant. Let's trust Jesus for the other ways that we blow it. He says in verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? And then he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is probably thinking, what, you think I'm, I'm like telling you don't buy bread from the Pharisees? Like that that is what matters? You know, it's pretty significant that we understand and believe the truth. Satan attacks us by twisting truth. And that's why it is so significant for us as we study Scripture that we take exactly what Jesus says, that we believe it, that we teach it, because it has eternal ramifications. Leaven influences everything it touches. The moment we start modifying God's truth, it impacts everything. Here's the third point, which is so significant. Do you confess Christ? Do you confess Christ? Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So here's something to think about. Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you confess Jesus, and that is an expression of what is truly in your heart, you are saved. If we got some words, like I remember when Michelle was a new believer, the, the guy that she had been working with, um, was sharing the gospel with her, praying for her. She worked at a car dealership, and, and her manager got saved, is sharing the gospel with her, and she's just not getting saved. And so they get in a car, and he, he says, hey, can we go to lunch? And so they get in the car, and they're driving off to lunch, and he pulls over on the side of the road. And Michelle's like, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that it was him, I would have thought, okay, wait a second, what is going on here? Let's go to lunch, pulling over on the side of the road in the car. And, and he just says to Michelle, he says, hey, will you pray with me? Michelle's like, yeah, sure. So he starts praying this prayer. And Michelle's repeating after him. And then he gets to, and Jesus, I accept you as Lord of my life. And Michelle opens her eyes, looks over at him. She's like, I ain't saying that. She didn't believe that. But you want to know something? Had she mechanically repeated those words? You want to know what effect it would have? Zero. If it's not the expression of what's really in your heart, it is not the confession that the Bible is talking about. Let's look at what happens here. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, so now he's going up the hill. He's, he's getting out of the Jewish area, going back up to another area because he wants to have a conversation with his disciples. And when he gets there, he says this to them, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, we got the Pharisees. They rejected Jesus. And the disciples are going to say there's a lot of people who actually have very positive thoughts about you. They say some very complimentary things. Well, let's look at what some of those are. 
Some say John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist had a very powerful ministry, never did a miracle. But his ministry was so powerful that when Herod saw the miracles that Jesus was doing, he said, oh, this must be the reincarnated John the Baptist. Now, Herod had this sense of conviction. He killed John the Baptist. And, he, and the Holy Spirit was convicting him of judgment. And he's like, oh, no, John the Baptist has come back. It was like this crazy thought, but it just reflected that he knew he was in trouble. So some say John the Baptist. Other, Elijah. Hey, Elijah never died. He was caught up. And he was caught up into heaven on the chariot. And they're just like, hey, Elijah never died. The Old Testament said Elijah's coming back. Maybe he's Elijah. Or Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who, when he was called into ministry, he was told, hey, preach. And by the way, nobody's ever going to listen to you. People are going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. And God says to him, but you better fear me more than people. I'll protect you, but you, you fear people, and you're going to be in trouble. And so Jeremiah went out and preached and was a faithful minister and never any record of converts for him. And so Jesus, when they're seeing the resurrection, or they're, when they're seeing Jesus in his ministry and they're seeing the way he's being rejected and hated, they're, oh, it's kind of like Jeremiah. And some just say he's one of the prophets. You know, believing positive things about Jesus isn't enough. You need to actually know who he is. And when you know who Jesus is, when you see Jesus for who he really is, that will completely transform your life. People I've known that have known all about Jesus, and then all of a sudden one day they come to know Jesus. It is amazing the change that happens in their life. Not necessarily, I mean, Paul talked about his ongoing struggle with sin, but people are not the same after they see Jesus. And then Jesus asks a most important question. And by the way, this is a question for you. And it says this, verse 15, But he said to them, But who do you say I am? Now that you is plural. Jesus is asking this question of all of his disciples. And Peter gets the credit, but Peter's just the spokesman for the group. And, you know, throughout Jesus' ministry with his disciples, by the way, he's frustrated with them with the whole bread thing. Like when you read the other accounts, he's like, oh, my goodness, are you guys blind? Like he's always frustrated. He's always saying, oh, you men of little faith. And finally they get it right. It's like, hey, let's find one where they did well. Well, this is it. We, we want to focus on this. In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, they knew who Jesus was when the crowds were rejecting Jesus and, and they were leaving and, and Jesus said to them, hey, are you guys going to all leave too? They said, who, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They saw Jesus for who he was. He was the Christ. That's the Messiah. Isaiah 7, 14, the Old Testament defines this Messiah as Emmanuel. We say that at Christmas. Emmanuel is just a Hebrew word. Im means with. U means us. And El is God. It's with us, God. Emmanuel is just Hebrew for God with us. And so the Messiah, when they say you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, they are saying the Old Testament prophesied that God himself would come, and that's you. And then they emphasize that again, and they say the Son of the living God. 
And when they say son of God, they don't mean son of God like we're all sons. Jesus claimed to be the son of God, and the Pharisees wanted to kill him. And they wanted to kill him because they said, you are making yourself equal with God. God refers to himself, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. He never refers to any of anyone else in the way he refers to himself. He is uniquely the son of the living God in the sense that he shares God's essence. He is a member of the Trinity. You know, uh, when you look at that Lifeway survey, let me give you a few more of those things. Um, they asked the question of these Christians, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 55% say yes. 55% of people who are Christians say that Jesus was created by God. Um, how about this? Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 51% say yes. Um, how about this? Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation, 59%. So here's the issue. Of people in the United States who go to churches, and by the way, a ton of people who go to church every week, when you ask them who Jesus is, he's a creation, and he's a great teacher, but he's not God. Do you want to know what that means? Those people are not Christians. And that's where we are. And it's pretty significant culturally for us to understand that but man isn't it more important for us to think about how would we answer those questions how would we respond to those things I want to close with this do we confess Christ you know when Jesus opens up your heart when God opens up your heart you are gonna know that Jesus is real you're gonna know who he is here's the interesting thing in that passage in in uh, in um, Matthew Jesus goes on in verse 17, he answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, the disciples get the credit every time they mess up. But the one time they get the answer right, Jesus says, Actually, Peter, yeah, you got it right, but it's only because God showed that to you. God gets the credit. Uh, here's... Ephesians 2, this is talking about all of us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once you walked, in, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest. See, all the people who confess Jesus, who don't actually know Jesus, their life continues unchanged. They still do whatever they feel like doing. That's how you know whether or not you know the Lord. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You know, I can't tell you how many times 
in my life, I've been talking with people, ministering to them, sharing the gospel, taking kids away on events. I remember one time this, this kid in our, in our youth group was like the head of like the gang in Santa Clarita. And he tagged everything and did all, committed all kinds of crimes. And he got arrested and his parents, you know, had this $30,000 fine to repair some of the damage that, they, that he had done. He was coming to youth group, but I remember thinking about kicking him out because he was kind of coming with his friends and creating problems. One day I took him to an event. He heard the gospel. It wasn't different than the stuff he'd been hearing all along. But he went forward, and he was broken, and he was crying. and He just had this emotional response to God opening up his eyes. And he prayed to receive Christ, and his life was different. I remember and know if this is just an emotional response to your problems, like the weight of his criminal behavior was on his shoulders. And, and I just said, here's how you're going to know if this is just stress about your life or if God's truly opened up your heart. Here's how you'll know. Next year, your life will be different. Because when God changes your heart, you see everything differently. And I told him, I said, if next year your life is the same as it is today, then don't look at this as the day you became a Christian because God transforms the people that he saves. The same power that saves you transforms you. And there are plenty of people who God opens up their heart, they see Jesus for who he is, and they are never the same. And by the way, that is not the religion of the Pharisees where we're trying to externally um, diligently do the right thing so we can get into heaven. That's just a heart that sees Jesus for who he is and expresses itself. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. And God, I pray that, that people would genuinely know you, that we would know you, that we would be effective in sharing the gospel. Lord, thank you for your grace and your kindness in your name. Amen.